2023 was a crazy year. It was a time of extreme geopolitical conflict with the wars in Gaza and Ukraine and growing tensions between the United States and China. It was also a time of severe economic crisis with numerous bank collapses and rising inflation leading to rising interest rates that fueled a debt crisis with numerous countries defaulting on their debt. And there was so much more that happened this year. Today I'm going to be summarizing the most important geopolitical and economic issues of 2023. For people who don't know, my name is Ben Norton, I am the editor of Geopolitical Economy Report, and today I'm going to be discussing a variety of issues that happened this year, including Israel's war on Gaza, which is becoming a larger regional conflict, also how Ukraine has been losing the war with Russia, despite the fact that it has received billions of dollars of weapons and support from Western governments. At the same time, we've seen a rebellion across the global south with countries like in West Africa rising up against the former colonial powers. And in the same vein, we've seen the expansion of institutions like the BRICS bloc, a lot of this is motivated by a global backlash against growing inequality and economic dysfunction. And in that vein, we saw a severe inflation crisis around the world, which led to rising interest rates, which fueled a debt crisis in many countries, which I'll be discussing today. And at the same time, there is a growing movement of countries around the world to de-dollarize, to seek alternatives to the dominance of the US dollar. And in 2023, we saw the collapse of numerous large banks, including three of the four largest bank crashes in US history. And amid all of this, there was a meltdown in the crypto industry and numerous crypto companies and entire exchanges were shown to be frauds. And in Europe, several economies are entering recession and there are many warnings of de-industrialization of these countries destroying their industrial base and while this is happening there has been constant western media reporting claiming that the chinese economy is in crisis and is potentially even on the verge of collapse but in reality as i'll discuss today china is going through an economic transition not a collapse but it's changing its economic model in some important ways and the historic rise of china which has become the world's largest economy and the world's biggest manufacturing power has led the united states to pursue some aggressive economic warfare strategies including the use of tech war and sanctions targeting high-tech industries in china and this is also at a time in which other countries are shifting their geopolitical alignment Many countries are refusing to be aligned and are kind of reviving the non-aligned movement in the global south. But we also see major players like India, which are moving closer to the United States and taking an increasingly anti-China policy. We also saw the imprisonment of Pakistan's former prime minister Imran Khan with mass protests against that. And in Brazil, we saw the return of the left-wing leader Lula da Silva, who is reasserting South America's role in global politics. But in the opposite direction, in Brazil's neighbor Argentina, we saw the rise of the far-right leader Javier Millet, who's trying to adopt the US dollar and refuses to join BRICS. So this comes at a, at a severe time of economic and political crisis. And finally, if you go back to the United States, 
In 2023, we saw the beginning of the election campaign, which always begins at least a year before, and incumbent President Joe Biden is hemorrhaging support, and polls show that Donald Trump could very well come back to office. So this was a crazy year, and it's looking already like 2024 is also going to be quite a hectic year. So with that said, I'm going to go into greater detail on all of those issues that I just mentioned. There is going to be a lot of information packed into this episode today, but for people who want to do more of their research, in the description below, I will include an article over at geopoliticaleconomy.com that will have links to all of the sources that I'll be discussing today. And I have over 100 sources that I'll be looking at, including articles and reports by organizations and graphs and stats. So look for that in the description below. And without further ado, here are the most important geopolitical and economic stories of 2023. Now, one of the most important issues of the year came in October, in which a war broke out in Israel-Palestine, and Israel killed more than 20,000 Palestinians in Gaza and also in the occupied West Bank between October and the end of December. The Financial Times newspaper reported that Gaza is now one of the most heavily bombed areas in human history, and of the 2.2 million Palestinians trapped in Gaza, almost everyone has been displaced and the vast majority have lost their homes. Roughly two-thirds of the Palestinians killed by Israel have been women and children. And the humanitarian organization Save the Children reported that Gaza has become the deadliest conflict for children in the entire world. Israel is breaking records with the number of children it has been killing. Israel has also broken records in the number of journalists it has killed, and reports by journalist organizations have said that this is the deadliest conflict ever reported for journalists. Likewise, the United Nations warned that Israel has killed more UN aid workers in just a few months in the war in Gaza than any other conflict in history. And top experts at the United Nations have warned publicly that the Palestinian people are at risk of genocide. Meanwhile, top Israeli politicians have referred to Palestinians as animals, have imposed a full-on medieval-style blockade of Gaza, and they have even openly boasted that they're carrying out a new Nakba, referring to the mass ethnic cleansing of indigenous Palestinians in 1948. They have openly said that they're carrying out a new Gaza Nakba. This is why at the end of the year, South Africa officially initiated proceedings in the United Nations International Court of Justice, accusing Israel formally of genocide. And the South Africa Foreign Ministry published a devastating report looking at the statements from Israeli officials who have openly publicly incited genocide against Palestinians. Meanwhile, the U.S. has been protecting Israel on the international stage, and Washington has repeatedly used its veto power in the U.N. Security Council in order to prevent any attempt at bringing about a ceasefire or humanitarian truce in Gaza. 
And the Wall Street Journal reported that the U.S. has been sending Israel tens of thousands of bombs and artillery shells, including 2,000-pound bunker buster bombs that are being used to completely destroy Gaza and level all of the buildings to the ground. Meanwhile, the war has been expanding into a regional conflict with resistance forces in Yemen and Iraq and Syria and Iran getting involved and pledging to defend the Palestinian people. So there are a lot of concerns going into 2024 that this war can continue to expand. Israel has already bombed Syria and Lebanon. The United States has also bombed Syria and Iraq. So this is an important issue to watch in 2024. Now, another very important issue in 2023 was the war in Ukraine. Now, this war did not begin in 2022 when Russia invaded Ukraine. In fact, it goes back to 2014 when Ukraine had a democratically elected geopolitically neutral president, Viktor Yanukovych, who was overthrown in a coup backed by the United States and a pro-Western regime was installed that claimed that it was going to join NATO, and this set off a conflict. According to the United Nations, at least 14,000 Ukrainians died from 2014 until the end of 2021, and then Russia invaded in February of 2022, and Western governments spent tens of billions of dollars flooding Ukraine with weapons, providing support in every way they could, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin admitted that Washington's goal is to weaken Russia. And the New York Times reported that Western governments have special operations forces on the ground in Ukraine, including, by the way, CIA personnel have been on the front lines helping to oversee the Ukrainian war against Russia, meaning that this is really a NATO proxy war. And the Western media has staunchly supported this war, encouraging more and more weapon shipments. But... In 2023, the media began acknowledging that Ukraine is losing this war. As The Economist magazine put, Putin seems to be winning the war in Ukraine for now. The British newspaper The Telegraph also reported with the headline, quote, Ukraine is losing, but the UK must stand by it. So the Western media is acknowledging that Ukraine is losing this war, but calling for continued support after tens of billions of dollars in weapons have been sent. Ukraine's top general even admitted that the war is at a stalemate. And the Newswire AFP reported that the conflict's battle line, the front line, has not moved since November of 2022. Well, for some of us independent journalists, this was not a surprise at all. In fact, back in February of 2023, I published an article over at geopoliticaleconomy.com in which I quoted comments, very revealing comments that were made by a former top State Department official, Richard Haas, who was then the president of the powerful Council on Foreign Relations, and he was involved in the Iraq War in the George Bush administration. And he admitted, this notorious neoconservative admitted that the Ukraine war was already frozen at the beginning of 2023. He, he said he acknowledged that there would be no territorial changes. And yet he insisted that the West should continue supporting Ukraine and flooding it with weapons in order to weaken Russia. And he said that the West should not pursue a peace agreement with Ukraine. 
And on that subject, here at Geopolitical Economy Report, I have detailed how numerous Western government officials and even some Ukrainian officials have admitted that the U.S. and its European allies have killed every single attempt at bringing about peace and peaceful negotiations to bring about an end to this conflict in Ukraine. This was admitted by the former leader of Germany, the Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder. It was admitted by top Ukrainian officials, including close allies of Zelensky. It was also admitted by Israel's former prime minister, Naftali Bennett. They all said that Russia wanted to sign a peace agreement with Ukraine, and yet the U.S. and the U.K. said, no, you should keep fighting Russia. Meanwhile, tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians are losing their lives. It's a complete catastrophe. And as the Ukrainian scholar Ivan Kachanovsky pointed out, the Ukrainian government is so desperate that it's now trying to draft Ukrainians to go and fight who are amputees, who are blind and who are deaf. And the Ukrainian government is trying to force foreign countries like Germany and other European nations to, to send Ukrainian refugees in Europe back to Ukraine so they can be conscripted to go fight in this proxy war against Russia. And as the Ukrainian scholar Ivan Kachinovsky pointed out, they are fighting to the last Ukrainian, quite literally. Now let's talk about the rise of the global south and numerous rebellions in the West African region of the Sahel. In 2023, there was a military uprising in the country Niger, which is a former French colony, and a nationalist government came to power that condemned French neocolonialism, and the new government expelled the French soldiers that had been in the country for many years, and also the Western powers imposed sanctions on Niger and threatened potential military intervention. This led the anti-colonial military governments in neighboring Burkina Faso and Mali to publicly declare an alliance with Niger, and they said that there is a foreign intervention against Niger. It would be a regional war against them as well. And I reported over at geopoliticaleconomy.com about the new leader in Burkina Faso, who is a young revolutionary named Ibrahim Traoré, and he's influenced by the former revolutionary leader of Burkina Faso, Thomas Sankara, and he's bringing back this anti-imperialist legacy, and he has been allying with the leftist governments in Latin America, like Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. The Economist magazine did a poll and found that 78% of people in Niger support the anti-colonial policies of the military government, and many Western capitals are concerned that this kind of revolutionary anti-colonial spirit could spread across the global south. And it's pretty easy to explain why so many countries in the formerly colonized world are angry, because they ostensibly have political independence, but economically, there is a kind of neo-colonial system that continues to persist. And we've seen reports that inequality globally is getting worse over time, not better. Oxfam, the international humanitarian organization, published a report that found that the richest 1% of the world took two-thirds of global wealth since 2020 twice as much as earned by 99% of the population. 
And if you look at the economic gap between poor countries, emerging and developing countries concentrated in the global south and the rich colonial countries in the global north, if you remove China from the data, that you, you can see that in the past 20 years, there basically has been no change in the economic gap between rich and poor countries. When you add China to that gap, you can see that it looks like inequality globally is getting better over time, but that's because China has a different economic model, which I'll be talking about later, and that brings us to the kind of new Cold War and the aggressive trade war and tech war policies that the U.S. has been waging against China. But I'll come back to that thought later. First, I'm going to talk about one of the other most important issues of 2023, which was the expansion of the BRICS block, which consists of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. In a summit in South Africa in August, the BRICS officially invited six new countries to join what will now be the extended BRICS Plus bloc. Those included Ethiopia, Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Argentina. However, in Argentina, a far-right president came to power, Javier Millet, and he announced that Argentina will not be joining BRICS. So instead, it's going to be BRICS 10, with five new countries joining, not Argentina. I'm going to talk more about Millet a bit later. He is very pro-US and pro-Israel and has taken a very anti-China position and is trying to dollarize his country when many countries are seeking the opposite, de-dollarization. We saw a clear example of this with the BRICS Bank, which is officially known as the New Development Bank. This was created as an alternative to the US-dominated World Bank. And in 2023, the BRICS Bank, the New Development Bank, expanded and added new members, including Argentina, Saudi Arabia, and Zimbabwe, although it's likely that Argentina is going to leave this as well. And under the leadership of the new president of the New Development Bank, who is the former left-wing president of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, she also announced that the BRICS bank is de-dollarizing and is trying to give out more lending in local currencies of the members of the BRICS bank. In a report that I did analyzing the expansion of the BRICS, I explained how the BRICS is encouraging local trade between bilateral trade between members in local currencies. So China and Russia are trading in the Chinese yuan and Russian ruble. Russia and India are trading using the Russian ruble and the Indian rupee. China and Brazil have de-dollarized their trade and are trading in the Chinese yuan and the Brazilian real. And also at the same time, the BRICS increasingly represents a larger share of the world economy. Without Argentina, it's still going to represent about 37% of world GDP measured at purchasing power parity. And even more importantly, in some ways, the BRICS represents 40% of world global oil production now as it's expanding and roughly one third of world gas production. So they these countries now in BRICS, especially now that it includes Iran, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, they have the serious potential to challenge the hegemony of the U.S. petrodollar system. Developments like these are why the president of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, she acknowledged that the world is becoming more multipolar. 
She said the tectonic plates of geopolitics are shifting faster, and she acknowledged that the dominance of the U.S. dollar is gradually declining. This was a very important issue that I reported on a lot in 2023, the issue of de-dollarization. As CNBC put it, calls to move away from the U.S. dollar are growing, although they did acknowledge that the greenback is still king. Yes, the dollar is powerful, but it's not all powerful. And a former economist for the White House Council of Economic Advisors published an article in Foreign Policy magazine warning that if BRICS creates a currency for trade, now it's not going to be a currency that all of the countries adopt locally, but if BRICS creates some kind of international unit of account that they can use to settle international trade, he warned in Foreign Policy magazine that a BRICS currency could shake the dollar's dominance. And by the way, this is exactly what Brazil's left-wing president, Lula da Silva, has called for. He wants to create a BRICS currency and a Latin American regional currency, a unit of account, in order to facilitate regional trade and investment to challenge the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. I reported this year how many countries are dropping the dollar in their international trade, including China, Russia, Brazil, India, also countries in Southeast Asia, in the ASEAN, Kenya, even Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which are longtime U.S. allies. That doesn't mean that the hegemony of the dollar is going to disappear overnight, but they're de-dollarizing in particular a lot of their international trade. Well, at the same time, to be fair, the dollar is still dominant in international reserves and in particular in investment. But things are changing there as well. The International Monetary Fund, which is dominated by the U.S., the IMF also acknowledged in 2023 that the dollar share in global central bank foreign exchange reserves has been declining and there has been an increase in the holdings of other currencies like the Chinese renminbi and also the Japanese yen. The IMF estimated that the dollar represents now 59% of global central bank reserves. That's probably a very conservative estimate. In fact, the prominent economist Stephen Jen, who previously worked at Morgan Stanley and was an expert on currency trading, he estimated in 2023 that the dollar suffered a stunning collapse in the previous year and the share of global reserves when you, when you adjust for exchange issues the different exchange rates, he estimated that the share of the dollar in global reserves is actually only 47%, less than half of world central bank foreign exchange reserves. Western media outlets and governments have been quite funny on this issue because they'll often claim one day that, oh, well, de-dollarization is exaggerated. It's not something you should worry about. But then at the same time, you, if you follow closely, as I did in 2023, you can see important events. Like, for instance, the U.S. Congress held a special hearing discussing de-dollarization and the decline of the exorbitant privilege of the U.S. dollar. I reported on that over at geopoliticaleconomy.com. And if you go into the link below, you can find all of the links that I'm discussing today. So you can do further research Although, again, I'm mentioning over 100 sources today, so there is a lot of research that you can do for yourself. Now, one of the reasons that so many countries around the world are de-dollarizing and seeking alternatives to the U.S. currency 
is because the U.S. has increasingly used its currency as a geopolitical weapon. And today, more than one quarter of the world population lives in countries that have been sanctioned by the United States illegally, unilaterally, and they represent one third of world GDP. And this was admitted even by the U.S. Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, who did an interview on CNN in which she acknowledged that constant U.S. sanctions and weaponization of the dollar, quote, could undermine the hegemony of the dollar. Those are her words. She acknowledged that the dollar is hegemonic and that sanctions are undermining that. A big wake-up call for countries around the world was when the Western powers seized $300 billion worth of foreign exchange reserves held by the Russian Central Bank in foreign bank accounts. And in 2023, the U.S. has been pushing to steal those $300 billion from Russia, from the Russian people, and to use that money to fund Ukraine to wage the proxy war against Russia. This attempt to use stolen Russian reserves to fund Ukraine has frightened a lot of countries, including longtime Western allies, because they're concerned they could be next. The U.S. and European countries also seized the foreign exchange reserves of Venezuela, including more than a billion dollars of Venezuelan gold held in the Bank of England. The U.S. also seized the foreign exchange reserves of the Afghan Central Bank, which is unleashing an economic crisis in Afghanistan and potentially a famine. And the U.S. seized the foreign exchange reserves of Iran's central bank. So many countries are saying, well, if we hold dollars, those dollars can be seized if we carry out a political policy that Washington doesn't like. So we should gradually over time de-dollarize and hold alternative currencies and other commodities in our reserves. One of those commodities is gold. And the Wall Street Journal reported in 2023, quote, Central banks look to increase gold reserves as geopolitical worries mount. And by geopolitical worries, they mean the possibility of the U.S. and Europe stealing any U.S. dollar or euro denominated assets held by foreign central banks. Now, on the issue of central banks, another very important issue in 2023 was inflation. Inflation also was a big issue in 2022, but in 2023, the U.S. Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, took an extraordinary measure and it increased interest rates at the fastest pace since the famous Volcker shock of the early 1980s. And this came after 15 years of very low, almost zero interest rates. And this had severe economic consequences, not only in the U.S., but around the world. Now, when the U.S. raises interest rates, it has an impact on the entire world economy precisely because of the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. The dollar is still the most commonly used currency in international trade and investment. It's the most held currency in foreign exchange reserves, despite its decline in its dominance over time. And this has you know, led to the discussions of the exorbitant privilege of the U.S. The U.S. is the only country that can print its currency, the dollar, and therefore it can print that currency to maintain a massive current account deficit, a massive trade deficit with the rest of the world, importing energy and commodities and technologies. And this is why economists have a phrase I like to say, when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. 
I'll be talking about the impact of the interest rate hikes in the US and how it has influenced the world economy. But first, I want to look at the narrative from the Federal Reserve and its chairman, Jerome Powell. Powell initially claimed that the inflation rise in the US was because wages were too high. And he said clearly in a press conference that the goal of raising interest rates was to, quote, get wages down. So this was an this was an attack on labor in the US. However, 2023 was quite of a historic year when you look at economic narratives, because in 2023, some economists, some heterodox economists were able to break through into the mainstream, acknowledging with numerous studies showing that one of the primary drivers of inflation was not high wages by workers, but rather increasing profits of corporations. This was famously referred to as greedflation, and mainstream media outlets acknowledged, citing some of these economic studies, that corporate profiteering significantly boosted global prices. And this was even acknowledged by bastions of right-wing neoliberal economics like the IMF, which published a report by IMF economists in 2023 admitting that in Europe, rising corporate profits caused 45% of the inflation in Europe. 40% of the inflation was caused by rising import prices because of you know the war in Ukraine and energy prices and because of supply chain issues because of the pandemic. And the IMF acknowledged that only 15% of the inflation came from increasing workers' wages. This was a huge blow to the neoliberal economics narrative that inflation as Milton Friedman famously said, is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And specifically, it was a blow to the neoliberal economists who were trying to blame the inflation on demand pull inflation, trying to blame workers and claiming that the solution to inflation is clobbering workers and reducing their their purchasing power in order to to, to suppress demand to bring down an overheated economy, as they put it. But as I just acknowledged, by raising interest rates at a historic pace, the U.S. Federal Reserve also had a negative impact on countries in the global south. And the United Nations published an important report in 2023 titled A World of Debt, A Growing Burden to Global Prosperity. This report acknowledged that developing countries have been hard hit by exogenous crises, the geopolitical conflicts around the world. And this has made it very difficult for many of these countries to service their U.S. dollar-denominated debt because they cannot print the dollar. And as interest rates rose in the U.S., it made it more difficult for them to get dollars. And the exchange rate of the currencies of many of these countries was hit quite hard because their currencies depreciated against the U.S. dollar, which made it even more difficult to pay off their dollar-denominated debt. And it made it very expensive to import needed commodities like energy, like oil and gas or food. And especially food became more expensive because Ukraine and Russia are some of the world's largest producers of wheat and corn. Meanwhile, the UN report pointed out that many developing countries were pressured to take on debt from capital markets, and especially by US-dominated so-called multilateral organizations like the IMF and the World Bank. They encouraged these developing countries to take on debt by selling sovereign bonds 
in international capital markets. And as those dollars have, as the US Federal Reserve has raised interest rates and those dollars have become more expensive to get access to, these countries are facing severe debt crises. And there were defaults on sovereign debt by numerous countries in Africa, including Zambia, Ghana, and Ethiopia. There are a lot of warnings that Egypt may soon default on its debt, and Argentina has been also constantly at threat of defaulting on its dollar-denominated debt. And this is another reason why, for developing countries, it is very expensive to take on debt that they need in order to create infrastructure projects and invest in education and healthcare for their people and to, to decarbonize their economies and move toward green energy. And the UN acknowledged in its report that Western countries can consistently borrow at much lower rates than poor countries that need debt, that need financing the most. This has led many prominent development economists like Jomo Kwame Sundaram, who worked at the United Nations for a long time, they warned in 2023 that there are probably going to be many debt crises across the global south. This is why in 2023, so many countries in the global south were calling for a new international economic order, reviving these calls from the peak of the anti-colonial national liberation struggles in the 60s and 70s. And we saw a clear example of this with the summit of the G77, the group of 77 that was held in Cuba in September. And at this summit, there were not just 77 countries. It's called the G77 because that's how many countries there were when it was founded. But today there are 134 countries in the G77 and China is an observer. So together they represent the vast majority of the world population. And at the summit, they called for a new global order. They called for changing the rules of the game and creating new economic policies and institutions so countries are not constantly trapped in debt owed in U.S. dollars to the former colonial countries that colonized them. This is why, once again, as I talked about earlier, the president of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, Acknowledge that the world is becoming more multipolar. I think that's probably the most important takeaway of 2023, an increasingly multipolar world. And many countries in the global south are refusing to simply subordinate their economies to the rich Western countries. And by the way, even within those rich imperialist countries, there has been serious economic crisis. And in 2023, a major issue in the U.S. was bank collapses. In fact, in that year, there were three of the four largest bank crashes in U.S. history. The website American Banker published an article titled Dramatic Collapses Made 2023 the Biggest Year Ever for Bank Failures. The New York Times published an incredible graph that shows that the three banks that collapsed in the U.S. in 2023, First Republic Bank, at $213 billion in assets, Silicon Valley Bank in $209 billion in assets, and Signature Bank with $110 billion in assets. Together, they were bigger than the 25 banks that collapsed in the great financial crisis of 2008. So this was a truly historic year for 
bank crises. And one of the significant reasons for that is because the Federal Reserve raised interest rates so rapidly. And that meant that many of these banks that had assumed that interest rates were going to stay low basically forever because they were so low for 15 years, many of these banks had invested so much in low-yielding U.S. Treasury securities, U.S. bonds, and as interest rates skyrocketed, those bonds collapsed in value and many U.S. banks became insolvent. I did an interview with the economist Michael Hudson, and he argued that in some ways, the banking crashes of 2023 were even more concerning than the 2008 financial crisis because the 2008 crisis was at least in part caused by complete fraud, whereas in 2023, the banking crisis was systemic. It was a deep structural crisis, and so many banks became insolvent because of the rising interest rates, which means that essentially the U.S. banking system needs the central bank, the Federal Reserve, to keep interest rates permanently low at what are essentially negative real interest rates, because when the Fed sets the federal funds rate at 0% or slightly above 0%, you know, 0 point something, in reality, that's a negative real interest rate because it's below inflation. Now, the 2008 financial crash was a wake-up call for many of the establishment neoliberal economists who run the U.S. government, and the former Federal Reserve Chairman, Alan Greenspan, was the epitome of this. He just completely imbibed the free market fundamentalist ideology and claimed before the financial crash that essentially that economists had found a way to prevent future financial crises and solve these fundamental economic problems. But after the 2008 crash, he did a semi-mea culpa, not completely, but he partially apologized, noting that there were serious mistakes in his free market fundamentalist neoliberal ideology. And he said, quote, I made a mistake in presuming the self-interest of organizations, specifically banks and others, were such that they were best capable of protecting their own shareholders and their equity in the firms. But what's funny is how the neoclassical mainstream economists who run both U.S. fiscal and monetary policy learned nothing from the 2008 crash. Because less than a decade later, in 2017, then-chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, she infamously predicted that there would be no new financial crises in our lifetimes. And after she made this comment, she was later promoted to be the U.S. Treasury Secretary under current U.S. President Joe Biden. And adding insult to injury, after U.S. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed in March of 2023, the Federal Reserve reversed its quantitative tightening policy, which is supposed to limit the money supply. And instead, in one week, the Federal Reserve printed $300 billion in order to bail out not only the banks, but specifically their uninsured depositors. Now, 93% of the deposits that were held in Silicon Valley Bank were uninsured. They were over the legally government-insured limit of $250,000, which is backed by the U.S. FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which was created during the Great Depression as part of FDR's Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. But the U.S. government essentially sent a message to oligarchs in Silicon Valley telling them there actually is no limit to the, the amount 
that is insured in these in their deposits in private banks. And I should point out that 56% of the loans from Silicon Valley Bank went to venture capitalist firms and private equity firms. And billionaire oligarchs like Peter Thiel, who's a notorious right-wing political donor who, who funds the campaigns of far-right Republicans, Peter Thiel and other oligarchs had millions of dollars held in their personal accounts, and they were bailed out by the U.S. government. The U.S. Congress later held a hearing on the collapse of these numerous banks, and in the hearing, they admitted that Silicon Valley was one of many banks that lobbied the U.S. government successfully to lift regulations. And of course, it later collapsed and was bailed out by the government. This is how extremely corrupt this scandal showed the U.S. government to be. And in that congressional hearing, a U.S. senator admitted, quote, I understand why Americans are angry, even disgusted, because the U.S. financial system is built in a way to protect the rich at the expense of the vast majority of working class people in the country. Poor and working people never get bailed out by the government, but rich capitalist oligarchs, they do get bailed out by the government while they ironically lecture poor people about how they have to work harder and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. It is quite literally a system in which Capitalism exists for the vast majority of working people, but there is socialism for the oligarch capitalist billionaires who don't have to worry about risk. They pocket all of the private profits, but then the risk is socialized. It is a system that is the worst of both worlds. But it wasn't just banks in the US that had crises in 2023. Across the pond in Europe, there was another massive scandal with Credit Suisse. Now, this had always been a very notorious bank, allegedly linked to organized crime and money laundering and such. But in 2023, the Swiss bank UBS completed its acquisition of Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse failed and was merged into this mega Swiss bank UBS. And by the way, speaking of organized crime and money laundering, in 2023, another big issue was the collapse of the crypto industry and then its rise again, you know, just like a typical bubble. The bubble pops and then it immediately inflated again. But in 2023, there were a series of severe scandals involving crypto scams. And as Reuters put it, the billion dollar pig butchering industry. Crypto users lost billions of dollars worth of holdings due to hacks and scams. And of course, one of the biggest scandals of the year was the sentencing of Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF, the notorious founder of the crypto exchange FTX. He was found guilty, guilty on all of the charges against him, including numerous counts of fraud and money laundering. And he had illegally used billions of dollars of the holdings of customers at the FTX exchange. He had used their deposits for his sister trading firm, Alameda Research, and essentially gambled away all of his customers' funds in one of the most blatant acts of fraud in modern history. Now, this was especially scandalous because Sam Bankman-Fried used some of that money to give millions of dollars to fund political campaigns 
mostly for neoliberal Democrats, but also for some Republicans in the U.S. as well. So this was a massive corruption scandal that showed how the U.S. political and economic system is extremely corrupt. But of course, it wasn't just the U.S. that faced severe economic problems in 2023. In many ways, you can say Europe was actually in even worse conditions, and the Eurozone economy as a whole shrank by 0.1%, officially putting it at the brink of recession, as the Guardian newspaper reported, including Germany, which was, you know, historically the center of the European, the Western European economy and an industrial superpower. However, as I reported here at Geopolitical Economy Report extensively, Europe is being deindustrialized very quickly, and the German industrial base is rapidly leaving the country, largely because of the economic policies carried out by the US and because of the proxy war in Ukraine and the European sanctions on Russia, which was historically the largest provider of gas and oil to Europe, and skyrocketing energy prices in Europe have fueled a lot of that inflation that we've seen. And then, of course, there was the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline between Russia and Germany. And in 2023, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hirsch reported that it was the United States that blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. And by the way, that report by this Pulitzer Prize winning journalist led to extreme censorship on social media and Facebook, in fact, censored anyone who posted Seymour Hersh's article on the Nord Stream pipeline destruction. And here at Geopolitical Economy Report, I interviewed a leftist German member of parliament, member of the Bundestag named Savim Dagdalin, and she accused the US of destroying the Nord Stream pipelines to prevent Germany from economically integrating with Russia. And she accused the US of increasingly treating Europe like client regimes, violating European sovereignty. And in fact, there was an incredible article published in 2023 by the mainstream European think tank, the European Council on Foreign Relations. This is as mainstream and pro-NATO and Atlanticist as European politics gets. And they published an article titled, The Art of Vassalization, How Russia's War on Ukraine Has Transformed Transatlantic Relations. And the article acknowledged that Europe is becoming an American vassal. That's the language they used. And they noted that Europeans' profound dependence on the U.S. for their security has undermined EU efforts at so-called strategic autonomy. Now, despite the fact that Europe was in economic stagnation in 2023, with numerous countries entering recession, despite that, many Western governments they projected their insecurities onto China. And in 2023, there was a ridiculous narrative that China is essentially on the verge of economic collapse. Media outlets spent months claiming that the Chinese economy had hit a wall. Hawkish Western think tanks claimed that China is in crisis and a popular term in 2023 was the so-called Japanification of China. The claim that it's going to enter a period of prolonged economic stagnation like Japan has since the 1980s. The ridiculous geopolitical analyst Peter Zihan went viral in 2023 
absurdly claiming that this is China's last decade and in a few years, China is going to collapse completely. Now, what's funny is at the same time, the IMF quietly upgraded its economic forecasts for China and acknowledged that GDP growth in 2023 was a very healthy 5.6% growth in the year. Now, most Western countries, they would kill for that kind of economic growth. And they do kill for that kind of economic growth with wars of you know expansion, imperial wars. But the point is that China's economy actually had an, an okay year in 2023. It certainly wasn't the best year. And there are economic problems in China, but they are very severely exaggerated. Now, this video is already long enough, so I'm not gonna be able to go into great detail about this. I'm going to make videos later on in 2024 explaining. But what's really happening is that China is changing its economic model. Previously, since the reform and opening up began in 1978, China was trying to increase the productive forces in the country as much as possible and have very quick GDP growth in all sectors and especially in infrastructure development. And one of the fastest ways to grow an economy is massive investments in building infrastructure, in housing, in railroads, in, in roads, in, in bridges. And China's gotten to the point where it already has some of the best infrastructure in the world. And the government has intentionally burst the real estate bubble starting in 2020 when the government passed the three red lines policy that told some of the big real estate developers that they cannot take on more debt unless they meet certain conditions. Like for instance, they cannot have too many liabilities over their assets. They could only be 70% of their assets. They couldn't take on too much debt. They had to have a lot of, a lot of liquidity and cash on hand to pay for their short-term debt. So the Chinese government made the decision to pop the real estate bubble before it caused a potential economic crisis like the 2008 crisis in the US, which of course was partially caused by a massive real estate crisis. So also the state-owned banks in China, because the, you know, it's socialism, the financial system in China is state-owned. It's, it's run on behalf of the people. And the Chinese government stopped lending largely to real estate developers and instead is moving its investment into industry and especially the high-tech sector. So the Chinese economy is not collapsing. This was an intentional decision by the government not to bail out large real estate developers like Evergrande. And the Western media in 2023 had all of these articles about Evergrande, which was one of the largest real estate developers in China. And they insisted that the collapse and bankruptcy of Evergrande showed that the Chinese economy was in dire straits. But these reports frequently failed to mention that it was Beijing's intentional decision not to bail out Evergrande. They could have done so, but they cho chose not to do so because Evergrande's economic model was very unstable. And it was based on a scheme where Evergrande would take on huge sums of debt and then it would buy land with that debt and then it would sell housing units to, to customers before the housing units were even built. And they would use that money to build the housing and then repeat the process over and over again. It was an unsustainable model built on unpayable debt. And the Chinese government, which is changing its economic model away from 
massive investments into infrastructure, decided not to bail out Evergrande. And as President Xi Jinping said, real estate housing is for living in. It's not for speculation. It's not for speculators to get rich on. So what's actually happening is not a Chinese economic collapse. It's an economic transition toward more investment in industry and in particular the high-tech industry and the renewable energy sector where China is becoming the world's leader. In 2023, China overtook Japan as the world's top exporter of cars and thanks to a state-led industrial policy encouraging the creation of electric vehicles in particular, China in just three years from 2021 through the end of 2023, overtook South Korea, Germany, and Japan as the world's largest car exporter. And again, one of the driving reasons behind that is that China has become the world's leader in electric vehicles. And in 2023, Chinese car maker BYD became a household name. And Bloomberg reported that in 2023, the Chinese car maker BYD overtook Tesla as the world's number one EV maker. And Bloomberg pointed out this funny clip from 2011 in which the billionaire oligarch Elon Musk, he laughed at the idea. He literally laughed at the idea of BYD competing with Tesla. And he claimed that Chinese cars were very bad and horrible quality. And, you know, who's laughing now? I mean, of course, I should point out that Elon Musk has also received billions of dollars in subsidies from the U.S. government, but he can't outcompete China. And by the way, it's not just electric vehicles. According to the Financial Times newspaper, since 2018, China has represented around 80% of the entire world's investment in clean energy manufacturing. And in solar panels, China is leading the entire world. So when it comes to the green transition, as more and more countries are trying to decarbonize their economies, China is by far the most important country on earth in this green transition. And Reuters reported in 2023 that, quote, China is leading the global renewables market. It noted that, quote, China's estimated installation of solar panels, that is, is more than double the number of U.S. and Europe installations combined, and it added that China will have more than 80% of the world's solar manufacturing capacity through 2026 and will be capable of satisfying annual global demand for much of the next decade. The Wall Street Journal published an article in 2023 titled, China's Green Revolution is Quietly Succeeding. It noted that as of 2023, non-fossil fuel generating energy capacity reached over half of the entire nation's total power mix for the first time, and 80% of new power capacity added in 2023 in China came from renewable sources. From the end of 2021 until mid-2023, solar capacity in China rose by 44%. And in addition to the massive installation of solar panels, there has also been huge investment in wind turbines in China. However, what was really funny about this article is that the Wall Street Journal complained that foreign investors cannot profit 
on China's green revolution because this is being done through state-led development and state-led investment. The Wall Street Journal wrote, China's immense renewable build-out is good news for the planet, but so far it has proven tougher to make money from Chinese renewable stocks. The transformation is impressive, but for investors, the best play might be to stand by and watch the show. So this is a clear admission that China's socialist model is the reason that it's able to engage in such an incredible transformation toward green energy. It's not the free market and private capital that is driving this transition. And this is one of the most significant reasons why the United States is waging a tech war, an economic war, a new cold war on China. This is why the US government has imposed so many sanctions targeting China's tech sector, because the US actually doesn't want to compete. Washington loves to talk about competition, but in reality, China is competing too well on the international stage. So that's why Washington is waging a tech war on China. In 2023, the Biden administration imposed numerous sanctions and acts of economic war against China. And many foreign policy elites and economic officials in Washington have acknowledged that the U.S. is waging a tech war. They've used that language, a technology war. Back in 2021, the U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimundo said that the U.S. was working with Europe in order to, quote, slow down China's rates of innovation. And in 2023, the U.S. Commerce Secretary Raimondo, she held a meeting with tech executives and members of Congress, and she declared that, quote, China is the biggest threat we've ever had. I repeat, a top U.S. official said China is the biggest threat we have ever had. In 2023, there were also a series of ridiculous scandals about China that were totally manufactured. In February, there was this freak out in the U.S. because a Chinese balloon accidentally entered U.S. airspace. And China said that it only did so accidentally. It was not intentional. But in February, many U.S. government officials falsely claimed that China was spying on them. And the U.S. military spent millions of dollars shooting down this Chinese balloon. And then the U.S. military shot down numerous other balloons that belonged to, to hobbyists, to children. And later on, toward the end of the year, in September, finally, U.S. government officials, the Pentagon, admitted that when the Chinese balloon entered, it was actually an accident. They ag admitted that China was not trying to spy on the United States and that the technology that was on the balloon that was not even on, like it was not even turned on electronically. So it was just a complete farce but this is part of the media manufactured new Cold War against China. Now, in November, there was a meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping. And this was portrayed as a positive step forward to try to bring down tensions. And the U.S. claims it doesn't want a new Cold War, it only wants competition. But that meeting was immediately undermined because minutes after he met with President Xi, Biden did a press conference in which he attacked Xi as a dictator. So it shows that the U.S. cannot actually engage in diplomacy, that everything is always just about aggression and acts of war and trying to provoke conflict with other countries.
Now, one of the important stories of 2023 is how this U.S. aggression against China has been actually backfiring economically, just as the economic war on Russia has backfired on Europe and fueled extreme inflation and high energy prices, which is leading to a deindustrialization de crisis in Europe. Furthermore, in China, the U.S. tech war on China has actually been making Beijing more self-sufficient. And the U.S. put numerous sanctions on Chinese high-tech companies like Huawei. And in particular, the U.S. was targeting China in semiconductors. And the, the U.S. imposed an export restriction on the export of small semiconductors, small chips to China. However, in 2023, the Chinese tech company Huawei surprised the world by releasing the Mate 60 Pro phone that had a seven nanometer semiconductor, seven nanometer chip in it, despite the US export restrictions. And these chips were made by SMIC, which is a partially state-owned chip company called the Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation. So as much as the US attacks China economically, it's actually, yes, in the short term, it does cause some economic damage to China, but in the medium term, not even the long term, in the media term, it makes China more economically sovereign and independent. So it doesn't even need to rely on the US and Western corporations. And in 2023, the US government dropped any pretense that it actually cares about competition and free trade in the free market. And the US and its allies, after imposing sanctions and waging a tech war on China, they also began trying to ban Chinese apps like TikTok. And India did ban TikTok and numerous US states have already banned TikTok. And there was a huge debate in 2023 about whether or not the US should ban TikTok. And speaking of India banning TikTok, another important development in 2023 was that India has grown increasingly close to the United States. Now, India is governed by a far-right leader named Narendra Modi, and he's from a far-right Hindu nationalist party called BJP, which promotes an extremist ideology known, known as Hindutva, which basically wants to turn India into a Hindu state. Numerous prominent members of BJP and allies of Modi have called for turning India into what they call a Hindu Rashtra, which is a Hindu state. And they're also extremely anti-China. And in 2023, India had a series of economic and political agreements and even security agreements that it signed with the United States moving closer to Washington. And India is also part of the anti-China alliance, the Quad, that includes the US, Australia, Japan, and India. So in 2023, Modi visited Washington and met with Biden and they signed a series of agreements. However, to be fair, India is not just a total US puppet. It is a massive country. It has 1.4 billion people. And in fact, in 2023, India overtook China as the most populous country. And in 2023, India maintained very close ties with Russia as well, mainly for economic reasons, because Russia was selling India very cheap oil. And then India was actually refining that Russian crude and then selling 
oil to Europe at a profit. So India benefited a lot economically while Europe suffered. And of course, Russia just continued selling its oil to Asia. And in fact, in 2023, there was an incredible economic shift where Russia completely replaced the European market for its oil exports with Asia. And now India and China buy the vast majority of Russian crude, to a lesser extent also Turkey. And this was because in 2023, the G7 countries put a price cap on Russian oil and boycotted Russian oil. But the Financial Times newspaper reported, that, by the way, that that G7 price cap has completely failed and 99% of Russia's oil exports in 2023 were above the minimum $60 price cap that were set by the Western powers. So this reflects the fact that the global economic order is shifting. Now, on the subject of India moving closer to the U.S., in 2023, Pakistan also moved closer to the U.S., and this came at a time when India's neighbor Pakistan imprisoned the very popular former prime minister Imran Khan, who, according to polls, is the most popular politician in Pakistan. And the mainstream U.S. media outlet The Intercept obtained a document from Pakistan, an internal cable that proved that the U.S. government backed a political coup, a soft coup that overthrew the elected prime minister Imran Khan. And then he was later imprisoned on bogus charges. And the document shows that the U.S. State Department was threatening Pakistan under Imran Khan and said that you must cut your ties with Russia and you must support Ukraine and stop being neutral in this proxy war in Ukraine. And if you do not, you will face consequences. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Now, I mentioned that in 2023, India became the most populous country on Earth. I talked about Pakistan, which is the fifth most populous country on Earth. And I want to briefly talk about Brazil, which is the seventh most populous country on Earth and extremely important, increasingly, politically. At the beginning of the year, Brazil's former far-right leader, Jair Bolsonaro, who was closely allied with the U.S., he fled to Florida and he spent some time living in Florida while the new leftist president, Lula da Silva, came back to power. However, despite the fact that Lula won a free and fair democratic election, he was not immediately allowed to come right back to power peacefully because Bolsonaro's far-right supporters launched a violent coup attempt in January of 2023, and that coup attempt failed, but there were numerous people in the Brazilian military who were involved in the coup attempt. And almost immediately after he came back to power, Lula turned up the heat and he returned Brazil back to a non-aligned foreign policy, a global South-oriented foreign policy, and Lula gave multiple speeches in which he called for the end to the dominance of the U.S. dollar. Then in April, Lula took a historic trip to China and he met with Chinese President Xi Jinping and they signed numerous political and economic agreements. This was very important because Lula had also taken a trip to the U.S., but he only visited the U.S. for one day, whereas he visited China for four days. And in the U.S., Lula did not sign any agreements. In China, he signed dozens of agreements and Lula also visited 
the headquarters of the BRICS Bank, which I mentioned earlier, the New Development Bank, which is based in Shanghai. And the NDB, the New Development Bank, is now led by Lula's ally, the former leftist Brazilian president Dilma Rousseff. And in a fiery speech at the headquarters of the BRICS Bank, Lula called for an end to U.S. dollar dominance, and he called for de-dollarization. This has been a popular refrain during Lula's term. He has repeatedly called for de-dollarization, and he also called for South America to create its own currency to do trade um, between countries in Latin America so they're not dependent on the U.S. dollar, and therefore, by the way, so they can't simply be sanctioned by the United States like Venezuela was. However, these things don't always go in one direction because Brazil's neighbor Argentina has been moving in the opposite direction and the people of Argentina were facing an economic crisis largely due to unpayable debt owed to the US dominated IMF and to foreign bondholders and they elected the far right extremist Javier Milei and he has brought back kind of a mixture of libertarian economics with fascistic authoritarianism like Pinochet, the US-backed dictator of Chile, who was installed in a CIA coup. And Millet has been brutally militarizing Argentina. His political allies have been threatening to kill protesters, telling them that they have to face either prison or a bullet if they go out and protest. And Millet has been imposing brutal neoliberal shock therapy, mass privatizations. He has destroyed half of the government ministries, including Millet, dissolved the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Transportation and numerous other ministries. And Millet also introduced hundreds of executive orders going around the Congress and, and a so-called omnibus law that tried to dissolve Congress so he can rule as a dictator and impose neoliberal shock therapy. Of course, this is being met by mass protests and strikes by workers, which is why his libertarian fascist regime has been threatening to kill protesters and imprison protesters. And as I said earlier, Millet, who is a close ally of the U.S. and Israel, he has said that Argentina will not be joining the extended BRICS bloc. And in fact, during his campaign, Millet said very clearly that his geopolitical orientation is with the U.S. and Israel. And he claimed that he's going to cut off not only political relations, but even commercial ties with China and Brazil, despite the fact that China and Brazil are Argentina's two largest trading partners. So Argentina is a complete disaster. And it's not just Argentina, by the way. In Peru, in December of 2022, there was a political coup against the democratically elected left-wing president, Pedro Castillo. I did a lot of reporting on that coup, which was backed by the U.S. And in 2023, the coup regime released from prison the genocidal dictator, Alberto Fujimori, who was a fascist who committed genocide and he sterilized hundreds of thousands of indigenous people in Peru with the backing of the U.S. government. In 2023, I did a series of reports at geopoliticaleconomy.com 
looking at how the U.S. supported the coup in Peru and how the U.S. ambassador to Peru, Lisa Kenna, was a CIA agent who then joined the State Department. And she met with the Secretary of Defense the day before the coup. And he then ordered the, the military to turn against the elected left-wing president, Pedro Castillo. And they imprisoned the elected left-wing president, Pedro Castillo. And he remains in prison. He never faced a trial. And by the way, after the coup, the CIA agent turned U.S. ambassador, Lisa Kenna, she met with the ministers of mining and energy in Peru to talk about corporate investments to exploit Peru's very large natural resources, especially copper. The U.S. investment bank giant Goldman Sachs referred to copper as the new oil and of course, Peru is the world's second largest producer of copper, which makes the country very important. And the new coup regime, which has been staunchly pro-US, has also been being very anti-China. So that's not surprising. We see the new Cold War once again playing out in Latin America. And meanwhile, polls showed that the right-wing controlled Congress, which carried out this coup in Peru with US support, only has 6% popular approval. So, and 91% and of Peruvians oppose this oligarch-controlled right-wing Congress, but it has the full support of the U.S. government. And by the way, speaking of U.S. aggression against Latin America, another big issue that emerged in 2023 was that the Republican Party, many Republicans basically campaigned on the promise to attack Mexico, to bomb their southern neighbor, Mexico, the, the U.S.'s largest trading partner, and numerous Republicans even called for the U.S. military to invade Mexico. It's not a coincidence that Mexico is currently governed by a left-wing nationalist president, AMLO, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, known by the acronym AMLO, and he's the most left-wing president in Mexico in probably 80 years, and he gave numerous rallies in 2023 in which he condemned the Republicans' threats against Mexico. He also condemned the Biden administration for funding right-wing opposition groups in Mexico. And AMLO declared loudly to hundreds of thousands, millions of people, he said, Mexico is not a U.S. colony. And he also gave these huge rallies celebrating the anniversary of the nationalization of oil and lithium, which the Mexican government has nationalized. Once again, lithium has been nationalized. And Mexico is the 10th most populous country on earth, so it's a very important country as well, and we should pay more attention to it. And while I'm on the subject of political dysfunction in the U.S., I should point out, as this is the last issue that I'll discuss today, that Biden, the U.S. president, ended 2023 with an approval rating of just 39%, making him one of the least popular presidents in modern history. And as the presidential election looms in 2024, the New York Times published polling that found that Donald Trump is leading in numerous swing states, including Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And in the case of Michigan, this, is, this state is extremely important also because it has a large Arab population and Biden has been alienating so many Arab American voters by his staunch support for Israel's war crimes against the Palestinian people. Of course, Trump also strongly supports Israel and is a close ally of Israel's far-right leader Netanyahu. But 
you know, Biden has shown that he's basically the same as Trump on this issue. And top UN experts, as I discussed earlier, have warned that the Palestinian people are at risk of genocide. And Biden has continued supporting Israel and giving hugs to Netanyahu and giving billions of dollars to Israel to help it carry out these crimes. And he's losing support among some of the most important constituencies in states like Michigan, which Biden needs in order to win the 2024 election. At the end of 2023, numerous polls conducted in December showed that Donald Trump is leading over Biden and will likely be the next U.S. president. Of course, a lot can happen before November 2024 when the election happens, but this shows that the U.S. is in a severe political crisis. Both parties are extremely unpopular. You have two extremely unpopular candidates running for office. There is extreme political dysfunction. Corruption is rampant. In 2023, we also saw scandals like, for instance, the Senator Bob Menendez was exposed for blatant corruption. So 2023 was a disastrous year in many ways, and it's looking like 2024 will also be a year with many different geopolitical and economic crises. And for those who want to learn more about some of those problems, I am Ben Norton. You should check out my media outlet, Geopolitical Economy Report. If you join me to the end here, I guess you were interested. So I want to thank you for staying with me for this very long episode today. Please like this video if you're watching on YouTube and please subscribe to our channel. It helps to promote our material in the algorithm. If you prefer listening to these episodes, every video is available as a podcast. If you check out the Geopolitical Economy Report podcast. And finally, if you like the work that we did in 2023, please consider donating to help sustain our work. You can support us in multiple ways. If you go to geopoliticaleconomy.com slash support, the best way is you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash geopolitical economy. We are totally independent. We have no big donors. We have no institutional sponsors. We rely entirely on small donations from viewers and listeners like you. I want to thank you for supporting our work in 2023, and I'm going to be continuing my work in 2024 reporting on all of these kinds of issues that I discussed today. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'll see you next time.